Practice makes reflex. Not perfect, but reflex. I'll admit, that's not the way I usually heard the phrase growing up, but that's the way that I have found it to be true in my life. Practice makes reflex. See, in sports, there's a reason why you practice drills over and over and over again, like dribbling a basketball or running and rerunning plays in football time and again, or sprinting down the field one more time. It's because through practice, we embed those skills deep down within our muscle memory so that in the heat of the game, we can bust them out when we need them most. And this goes so much further than just sports. See, for example, chess. You may not know this about me, but there was a time in my life where I took this game so seriously. So seriously, in fact, that instead of playing video games, I would use my tech time for the day to scour the knowledge of this CD right here. Maurice Ashley teaches chess. Windows 95, baby. As in the year 1995. Some of you weren't even born yet. I was in chess club. I'd play in competitions. In elementary school, I would play and even beat adults five or six or ten times my age. I was the queen's gambit before it was cool. Not really. But time flies, and eventually I set down my chessboard. Well, fast forward to three weeks ago. I'm at the vault on a Tuesday afternoon helping out with the middle schoolers who show up after school. And one of them challenges me to a game of chess. And it turns out this kid is really good. But I hadn't taken uh, the game seriously in years and I wasn't paying attention. So I make a rookie mistake and I, it costs me my queen, which is one of the most powerful and important pieces in the game. Now, I won't name any names, but one of the adults watches the whole thing happen and walks over to me and goes, "Uh uh-oh, Peter, better not lose, as if that did anything for my nerves. But all of a sudden, a reflex kicked in. Get a pawn to the end. Get my queen back. Win the game. And sure enough, that's exactly how it went down. Why? Well, because even though it had been nearly 20 years since the last time I played that tight of a game, my instincts kicked in because practice makes reflex. See, we've been walking through Philippians 4 the last few weeks in a series we've been calling Rethink. Rethink. And today we come to our final verse in this section. Philippians chapter 4, please turn there with me, looking now at verse 9. Paul writes, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. Say that word with me, practice. Practice because practice makes reflex. And we're going to break down just why Paul believes that's the case. And how as a result of this practice... 
There is a reflex that is instilled within us because of this life commitment to rehearse these things over and over again. And the reflex is so much more glorious and more liberating and life-changing than we could ever imagine. I cannot wait to show it to you. But we've got to break down a few things of what we read so far before we get there. Paul says, put it into practice. But what is it? Well, verse 9. Whatever you have learned from me. Whatever you've learned. Well, this begs the question, doesn't it? What have we learned? That's the first question. What have we learned? And considering this is the final chapter of the four chapters written to the Philippians, I'd say we've learned quite a bit. Let me just quickly remind us of some of what we've gleaned over the course of this year alone. See, we started off in chapter 1 learning how to pray. That's what our prayer series was all about. We learned that prayer isn't just begging God to change things around us, but in fact learning to ask God to change things within us. Change of heart, change of attitude, change of mind, spiritual fruit, all growing up because of the new life that God has planted in us. And then in happenstance, that's the second series, uh, we learned that we can hold and maintain a solid stance so that no matter what happens, we can endure, right? And this results in a fearless posture. Fearless as in we don't have to be afraid of what the world may do to us because we know who wins in the end and we're on his team, amen? And yet... We can live this out with a total humility. That's what humble brag was about. Humility, which we pattern after the most brag-worthy example of humility the world has ever seen. Namely, Christ Jesus, God himself, stepping into us, into our life, our world. How he releases status and he empties himself and he embraces the heart of a servant. And in so doing... We then shine as lights in the darkness who work it out, who work out our salvation with fear and trembling because we are, what was the last, the sixth one again? We're all in. We are all in. All in. Why? Well, because of the surprising worth. That's number seven. Surprising worth of what we have seen in Christ, in Christ alone, greater than accolades, greater than the praises and prestige and position. We find Jesus to be the most valuable thing on earth, and we will sacrifice whatever is required of us. We just want to know him and make him known. In this way, we then become Pace setters. Pace setters who set the pace of the race of those around us. And we too look in turn for pace setters who are out ahead of us that we can set our own race and run this race to Jesus and for Jesus in every area of life, including the times when we need to learn to be a peacemaker. Peacemaker, whether it's between me and someone else. Or perhaps stepping into a fight between two other people and helping them learn to find that they can agree in the Lord. Whatever it is, this now brings us full circle because of the peace that God has made possible between us and himself. The peace that he makes possible between us and one another. Full circle right now back to our series, Rethink. I'd say it's been quite a year of learning, wouldn't you? Quite a lot that we've considered over this year. 
But I want you to notice, Paul does not stop there. Verse 9 continues, whatever you have learned or received, received, put into practice. See, it's not enough that we learn things theoretically. See, Paul is saying that information without application is never enough. The goal here has never been transferred information, but transformation. Right? Life change. Paul says we have to receive it. My parents are in town this morning. And I cannot tell you, uh, and, I, and I, actually I, I can tell you this because they're around to hear it. Um, I was a bit of a know-it-all as a kid. Annoying. I know. I did it again. See, just like that. I know. Well, my dad will sometimes tell the story. He'll tell the story about how I seem to always know everything as a kid. Um, there are times where someone would say something and my response was, yeah, I know. <laughs> so annoying, right? Kid. <laughs> but yeah, I know. And then when pressed as a six-year-old as to how I know, I would turn around and say, well, you just told me. So now I know. That is not what Paul is after here. Right? He's saying when it comes to practice makes reflex, it has to get down into our body, into our very selves. Because we've learned some incredible life-changing truths this year, week after week, Sunday after Sunday, breaking it all down and learning what it says. But have we taken the time necessary to move from learning into receiving? Let's just take a couple examples a few weeks back. Uh, we learned about living all in. All in. Well, consider, are you more all in today than you were six months ago? Are you more all in today in your faith, or do you still find yourself sitting on the fence, sitting on the sidelines? We also learned about pace setters. Pace setters, have you since this series a few months back, have you since found someone and invited them to be a pace setter for you? Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it's in your grief. Maybe it's in your finances or in your work or how to be a Christian in this world without losing your faith. Have you found someone who's just a little bit further than you who can speak into your life as a pace setter might? One more, just a few weeks back, we learned about becoming peacemakers. Peacemakers, And we had a very pointed challenge to make peace between us and someone else. So let me ask, have you? Is there a fight that's been going on for the last month that you've yet to take that step in and to make peace? See, Paul says it's one thing to learn. It's another thing altogether to receive. See, Paul's pulling no punches He's calling into question the potential for hypocrisy that could live within us. Where we become hearers of the word and not doers of the word. But can I tell you what I just love about the Apostle Paul? I love that he is no hypocrite himself. Verse 9 continues. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me. Put it into practice. He's saying, I want you to know, this is not just theory for me either. 
This isn't some lesson plan that I scoured off the internet to teach you and make you feel guilty about. See, Paul's saying, no, you heard it from me and you've seen it in my life. There is evidence of the truth that you're hearing from me in my life. I don't just talk the talk, I walk the walk too. There are some of us here, I wonder, I wonder if there are times that we think back on our life and we're like, man, am I even growing in my faith? Have you ever questioned that? I know I have. Am I even growing in my faith right now? I'll tell you, I've been walking with Jesus since I was five years old. But between you and me, he's been walking with me a lot longer than that. But that's 30 years of following Jesus. 30 years. How sad would it be if the things I struggled with as a five-year-old are the things I still can't find victory over in my walk with Christ. Yeah, I can spout off Bible verses. Yeah, I, I can tell you when the great schism took place in church history. I can give you all the details about the different atonement theories that have been discussed and argued over, over the course of the centuries, but have I received it? Has it changed my life? Have I internalized and digested it? And listen, I, I am not talking about perfection here. I'm talking about progress. Is there growth in our lives. <clears throat> See, take last week's lesson on learning to examine our thoughts by using the filter Paul gave us, right? Of, is it true? Is it noble? Is it right? A thought enters my mind. I can let it stay or I can vet it and examine my thoughts using the filter of, is it excellent? Is it praiseworthy? If it's not, I can get rid of it. Well, I'll tell you, maybe you found yourself this week sitting here thinking, a thought enters your mind and hours go by before you started vetting it, right? That's how it is for me. Sometimes I'll go days before I even consider, well, you know what? This thought has been ruining my life the last couple of days. It can be very easy to get down on ourselves and start thinking, well, I'm not doing this right. But consider, are you taking less time between when the thought enters and when you question it than you did before? If there's less time, then that means you're growing. That means you're improving. That means you're actually being, becoming more and more like Jesus over time. See, perfection. Perfection would say, I will never sin ever again. Good luck. Am I right? But progress says, look, I'm not going to become sinless. But by God's grace, I will learn to sin less. Perfectionism says, if I fail once, I'm toast. Progress says, okay, I failed again. But is my lag time decreasing? Is the amount of time it takes me to recognize and admit, wow, I am anxious again. I am, stre I, I am allowing these things to take me away from Jesus. Is that time decreasing where I catch myself and I run back to the cross? That's growth. That's what Paul's after here. Are we putting it into practice? Are we growing. See, we grow when we move beyond transferred information to transformation. 
And as any good teacher, Paul genuinely models this himself for us in his own life because practice makes reflex. And so, what is the reflex? What is the reflex born within us because of a life commitment of putting these things that we are learning into practice? This is so absolutely staggering. Verse 9, once more. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice. And watch this. The God of peace will be with you. Notice what it doesn't say. Two verses earlier we saw that when we're anxious, we can bring it to God in prayer. And he says the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's the peace of God. Look at what he's promising here. The God of peace. The God of peace. Not just the peace of God, but the God of peace will be with you. This is, this is so enormous. This is so massive. But I'm afraid we miss it. Let me see if I can illustrate this. Again, I mentioned my parents are in town visiting. And it's always a treat. And my kids especially love it. Because my kids have come, well, they're at the ages where they've come to realize that visiting family, and especially visiting grandparents, means gifts. <laughs> And I can't dog on my kids. I love my kids. I was a kid once, and I remember this. I did the same thing with my dad. My dad would go on business trips overseas, and I remember the first thing out of my mouth whenever he'd come back, it was something like, Daddy, 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 Daddy. What'd you get me? And I can't help but wonder, is it possible that we do the same thing with God? Is it possible we do the same thing with God? I'm not talking about health and wealth, prosperity gospel. I'm not talking about praying more so God will give you that red Ferrari you've always wanted. And I'm not even talking about tithing more so God, you know, lets you win the lottery or something. Like we, we get that there's something off about that. We're Christians after all, right? We, we're, we're past that. We're beyond that. And yet I wonder... Do we do the same thing with something like God's peace? Oh, I'm stressed out. I just need a little fix of God's peace in my life to make me feel better. Or maybe it's not peace. Maybe it's miracles. I, I, you know, maybe it's, it's miracles. I just need the miraculous touch of God on my body right now, whatever it might be. Or maybe it's not a miracle. Maybe, watch this, maybe it's heaven. Is it heaven that we're after? What I mean is, God, I just want heaven. I just want pure bliss. I just want endless forever and ever. No more tears, no more sorrow, no more death. Hear me. Is it bad to want heaven? No. Is it bad to want the miraculous touch of God? No. Is it bad to want peace? Of course not. But is it possible that we get so fixated on these good things from God that we end up missing the God behind all of these good things. Real life example. 12 years ago, I went through a dry spell 
in songwriting. So much so it had been years since I'd written a song. And I remember grieving about this one time with my wife, Grace, and she offered a very pointed question. She said, Peter, when was the last time you spent time with God not to get a song out of him, but just to be with him? Cut to the heart. Sure enough, I had reduced God into God the song giver. But he's so much more than that, isn't he? He is so much more. He is the God of all songs. Like he is worthy of every song that could ever be sung. What is it for you? Where have you set your eyes on the good things from God to the point that you miss the God of those good things? Can I confess that I face this same temptation every time I come up to speak? Like even this week, as I'm preparing for this message, I caught myself praying, Lord, give me a message for the people this Sunday. Did you hear it? I'm after the message of God when what's offered to me is the God of the message. It's subtle. It is so very subtle. And yet it makes all the difference in the world. All the difference in the world. And if we get this wrong, we end up turning God into one of two lesser gods. I'll give you a couple examples. Cosmic Butler. Cosmic Butler. Before the days of Google, back when your choice of internet search engines was limited to dial-up speeds and yahoo.com, there was a beloved search engine by the name of askjeeves.com. And I loved Ask Jeeves because it was like for the next three and a half minutes of non-Google Fiber speeds, I had a special personal butler to help me navigate what I was looking for on the internet. Whatever I wanted, Ask Jeeves knew how to deliver. Until, of course, something better came along. See, QGoogle.com. As a search engine, Google was faster, smarter, more intuitive. In 1999, Ask Jeeves stock was selling for $190 a share. Within three years, because of Google, it plummeted down to less than 90 cents a piece. Jeeves was dropped and Google took over. And see, when we reduce God to little more than the things that we want from him, it is only a matter of time before we fire him and go hire something else to deliver. Do we only go to God when what we really want is something other than God? And if he doesn't deliver on our timetable, then you know what? We just quickly drop him and move on to some other thing that will deliver the goods that we're really after. Is God our cosmic butler? So that's one angle. Here's another one. Is God a codependent giving tree? Codependent giving tree. Now to make this point, I have to apologize in advance because I'm about to ruin a beloved children's book. Shel Silverstein wrote a story called The Giving Tree. 
And I'll quickly summarize it. Once there was a special tree who loved a very special boy, uh, and he would come and play under her shade and swing on her branches. And as the boy grows older, he stops coming by so much. Now, he'd show up when he needed something from the tree, like apples, and she was happy. The tree was happy. But then he would leave, and she'd become sad again. And sure, the boy would show up and return when he needed some lumber to build a house, and so the tree was happy until he strips the tree of all its branches and cuts her down eventually to nothing more than a stump in the ground. And then the tree was sad again. But when the boy became an old man and he found himself weary from life and in need of a place to sit, the tree straightens herself up to let the old man sit down for some rest. And then the book closes out with this eerie line, and the tree was happy. The end. But that's not really a happy ending, is it? The tree exhibits what psychologists, psychologists call codependency. And a codependent relationship is a dysfunctional relationship where one person supports or enables another person's addictions and poor choices and immaturity and underachievement. Did you notice how the tree's happiness is contingent on the boy's acceptance of her? This kind of destructive behavior happens sometimes between a parent and a child or in friendships or even romantic relationships where one person just takes and takes and takes all to try and find fulfillment and happiness, but they never find it. It's never enough. And the other person just gives and gives and gives, and it's never enough to the point that they no longer recognize themselves. And all that remains is a shell of who they once were and where I'm going with all of this is there are some of us who see God as little more than a codependent giving tree. As if God somehow needs us. As if God's sole purpose in life for existing was to bless us and make us happy because he can't survive without us, without our praises, without our worship. And so we never grow and we never improve. And we never put in any effort at all in our sanctification because, oh, he's just going to accept me. He's just going to forgive me. He's fine with me the way I am. And it doesn't matter if I sleep with my girlfriend. It doesn't matter if I'm evading taxes. It doesn't matter if I'm greedy or not living generously. God's just going to accept me. He needs my acceptance. And what I'm here to tell you this morning is God will not be mocked. He is no cosmic butler, and he is no codependent giving tree. He is the almighty Lord and creator of heaven and earth, of all that is visible and invisible, of all that ever has been, is, and forever will be. We think God needs our acceptance? He's not insecure. He doesn't need my approval. And one day, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that he is Lord. The question is, will you and I recognize it now in this life or be forced to admit it in the life to come? 
This is why we must put into practice the things we have learned. Otherwise, we reduce God to less than who he is, and we wonder why we leave him. But if what we've learned, we receive and apply and internalize, our practice becomes reflex. And what's the reflex? The reflex is the awareness of God's very presence in and among us. Not simply the peace of God, but the God of peace is with you. And can you imagine how might your life change if you believed that in everything? In this bad breakup, in this stressful marriage, in this failing grade, in this difficult diagnosis, or this undesirable move to a place you don't even want to live in, or this terrible loss, whatever it may be. Like how would your outlook on life, your attitude in life, your, your confidence in life, how would it change if you knew beyond all shadow of doubt that God was with you no matter what? That is what Paul's saying can become a reflex for us. Because he knows as well as we do that a little bit of peace tacked onto our life from time to time can't even begin to compare to God himself breaking in, intervening, manifesting, and revealing himself in and throughout our story. And when we practice these things, the reflex that is firmly embedded deep within our bones is greater than just the peace of God around our life, but the God of peace in our life. Wow. Wow. And then I get to thinking, what if it wasn't just one person who experienced that, but a whole group of people. A family full of people, a, a house full of people, a church, a city full of people who had this reflex born within them. How might that change the world? And wouldn't you know it, that is exactly Paul's point. Verse 9, one last time. He says, And the God of peace will be with you. And the you here is not singular. It's plural. See, he's not talking to one specific person. It's not just like, hey, you individual Christian, if you get this right, you'll experience a presence of God in your life that's undeniable. No, he's saying, heart of life, church, 
You, we are all invited to together receive something so much more than information on a page. But God transforming our hearts from within to the point that God dwells so profoundly in our midst that it changes the landscape of earth to look a little more like heaven. God is in our midst. Are we aware? Do we recognize this? Are we living and risking and moving and taking ground and living in his favor like we believe this? Now, I don't want to sell to you on a faulty impression here. God in our midst doesn't mean it's always easy. In fact, we're going to see this exact point in the coming weeks, so you'll have to come back for that. See, it may not always look like what we expect, but I'm reminded of these words from C.S. Lewis. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. And at first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew those jobs needed doing, so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abdominally and doesn't seem to make any sense. What on earth is God up to? Well, the explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. God intends to come and live in it himself. I remember when Grace was pregnant with our firstborn, Annie. And I could tell our world was about to be rocked. Heart of life, we're pregnant. Not Grace and me. (laughs) Us. Heart of life is pregnant. God is in and among us. And I believe he's up to something. Sure, some things may get a little uncomfortable. That's the case with pregnancy. But let me ask this. Won't it be something to watch God work? Are you ready to see God show up and move? I know I am. I want a move from God. But let's not lose sight of the God of the move. We don't have to just settle for his stuff. He gives us himself. We get God. We get God. As we continue in our worship this morning, we're going to focus our hearts on our Lord right now through celebrating the Lord's Supper together. This is a meal Christ gave us on the night before he was crucified for the sins of the world. And that night he took bread and he broke it. 
And he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body broken for you. And afterwards he took the cup and he shared it with the disciples saying, this is my blood that's shed for you. And through the bread and the cup, we remember the body and blood of Christ. And as we taste and see it, and as we internalize it, may we find his very presence becoming embodied through us as we go from here into the world as his hands and feet. All around the room, there are stations with bread and cup. And I want to encourage you not to go up by yourself today but to grab someone. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's just some, some, a visitor in the pew next to you, whatever it is. Grab a few people, go up together, and I want us to receive this all together. Because God didn't make a solo promise to us individually, did he? He made a family promise, and families eat together. And we want to share in this together because God wants to make his presence known through us all. And so I encourage you, use this time to confess sin and to thank him for his sacrifice. Use this time to share in the wonder of all that he did for us. Use this time to refocus our hearts, not on the gifts that we have from him, but on God himself. Let's give him thanks, and then we'll respond together. Lord Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice for us. Thank you for dying for us, that we would be forgiven. And thank you for rising again, that we would have new life in you. And as we celebrate this sacrifice, Lord, even now, would you help us to love you not simply because of your cross, but because of you. Because we don't merely love the sacrifice of God, but the God of sacrifice. Not simply the cross of Christ, but the Christ of the cross. We love you. Not just what you do. So move in us, we pray. Shake us out of our slumber. And awaken us to your presence in and among us. Because God, we love you. We worship you. And may our hearts be holy and fully yours. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.